Perfect. I was going to say, but also Carla, if I do start to do the thing, just literally put in the chat, shut up. <laughs> just put it there. Stop talking. <laughs> Welcome back to Lives of Tomorrow. My name is Carla Bazashi, and I'm the CEO of WGSN, the world's leading consumer insight and trend forecasting company. In this podcast, we're focusing on what our lives will look like in the future. The changes waiting for us just around the corner, our lives of tomorrow and how all the trends and forecasts that we here at WGSN predict that you might read about in the news or hear about on social media will shape the way that we, that's you and me, will live our lives. Now, in this episode, I'm focusing on how our research at WGSN predicts that life will be changing through the eyes of our expert in consumer behaviour, with a special focus this episode on anxiety. And the person to guide us through that is you, Andrea Bell. So... Welcome, and please introduce yourself. Hi, Carla. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And of course, I started with a cough, so I apologize for that. I'm the VP of Insights for our Consumer Forecast and Strategy team at WGSN, which pretty much means all we do all day is analyze sentiments, social behavior, and how this is going to impact our clients' lives. Now, I'm going to get into a little personal bit before we get into the serious stuff. So what was the pivotal moment or maybe a person in your career that's had the most impact on you getting to where you are now? Maybe a mentor or there might have been a certain decision you made during your career. What was that moment? My probably the the most pivotal moment in my career was twofold. Wanted to be Indiana Jones when I was young. I was very involved in so- sociology and anthropology. And so I ended up in journalism. And against my minor was actually cross-cultural studies. And I was convinced I was going to change the world through writing, like most young writers and journalists often do. And I think at the core of journalism, we're all sociologists. We're always tracking things. Um, And I was lucky enough to get started at WGSN from the retail and business strategy side, kind of during the recession. So that sounds weird. Harrison Ford and the recession of 2008 kind of changed my life. Um, that's a great T-shirt. I'm going to get you that T-shirt for Christmas. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm definitely going to do that. It is, it's an interesting kind of jumping off point for this conversation, which is where do ideas come from and where does forecasting come from? And then obviously the point of it is we want to get to how does that impact normal people's lives? And my background, like yours, Andrea, is quite similar. I was a journalist and an editor. And I think People who become journalists are intrinsically curious about the world. So I love hearing people's pitches. I love hearing people's ideas. And in this forecasting world that you and I live in, I love then seeing how those play out in real life. Now, I've got so many questions for you, but I want you to be thinking about something in the back of your mind as we're going through this. It's actually an amazing question that I got from one of the other guests on a previous episode from the podcast. You don't, I don't want you to answer it now. Just think about it, let it percolate, uh, and I'll come back to it right at the end. And that question is, when was the last time that you learned something new? Preferably something that maybe had an impact on the way that you're living your life or the way that you see the world. So just think about that. When was the last time you learned something new? I'll come back to it at the end of the show. Yeah. Andrea, you describe yourself on your bios, whether that's on Instagram or on the WGSN website or at the many high-profile conferences that you speak at as part consumer forecaster and part futurist, which obviously makes you perfect for your job and perfect for talking about our lives of tomorrow. 
Now we're going to get on to anxiety and your specific predictions and research around that. But before we get there, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the actual process of making these forecasts? So how do you start your forecasting process that then eventually leads into these very specific insights that are so relevant to how people live their lives? Yes, this is a a big one. I will try to condense it to a very concise answer. Um, For any forecaster, our kind of hero reports at WGSN are always our stepic drivers and stepic innovations and our future consumer, which these are our flagship moments throughout the year. And what we do first, without a doubt, is listen and read. It is collaborative analytics, meaning we are checking everything from white papers with sometimes dismal data. We've looked at everything from youth suicide rates to see how depression is impacting people to actually then really fun stuff, regenerative farming and how that's going to change how we eat and live. And from that, we map it to a stepic forecast. So the the going phrase at WGSN is it takes a village to make a forecast. And that's incredibly true. We have different inputs from different areas. So we look at society, technology, environment, politics, industry, and creative. Previous forecasters will look at a traditional pest model, which is usually politics and economic society and technology. And this analysis is critical and it is useful. But what we feel and what we've learned from, you know, 22 years of kind of perfecting this is that our clients need to know what are those emerging behaviors and sentiments. And that can only really come from creativity and culture. So in terms of the foundation, it's looking at what are those inputs. And then it's mapping that on a global scale to how that will impact our consumers' lives, their feelings, their emotions, and more importantly, their behaviors. As researchers, we understand the importance of demographics versus psychographics. But if you're not in the industry, that might be very new to you. But it's really important when there's so much out there about generational attitudes to things and the impact that those attitudes might have on their futures, but also other generations as well. But can you talk about the difference between demographics and psychographics? At its core, demographics are useful. And and I want to stress that WGSN, we look at demographics in terms of market analysis. So some of our our key reports that are closer to season will look at market analysis. uh, We'll look at demographics. So let's let's just be very blunt. Demographics are who you are, you know, essentially age, location, what you spend, household income, how often you go online. So demographics are who you are as a person, but psychographics is the emotional layer. Essentially, why am I going to buy from you? What is the emotional connection to your brand? And one that we use at WGSN that I think really just surmises the difference between demographics and psychographics is, on paper, King Charles and Ozzy Osbourne are identical. They're both male. They were both born in 1948. They've both been raised in the UK. They've both been married twice. And they're both, for better or worse, wealthy and famous. So on paper, King Charles and Ozzy Osbourne are literally the same demographic map. And we know they are vastly different and have different lifestyles, priorities, and behaviors. So that is why that sentiment level, that that emotional connection and kind of that EQ mapping is critical for brands to succeed. We can't just rely on age, location, income to really, you know, drive future growth for our businesses. Do you think that the way the world has shifted in recent years makes the psychographic layer even more important, perhaps. And I, you know, I get asked a lot, you get asked a lot, well, how are Gen Z behaving towards, I don't know whether that's that's shopping behaviors or their interest in the environment or working practices. 
what a boomer's doing, what a gen, you know, you, you can talk about those different generational attitudes till the cows come home. Do you think that things like the pandemic, the recession that many countries are going into at the moment, do you think that makes psychographics more important or less important? I would definitely say more important, Carla, and especially for the next, you know, three to four years, we see those sentiment engagements being just critical to offering comfort, offering support, but more importantly, offering a strategic solution. At the end of the day, whether you're Gen Z and you're struggling to, you know, pay your college bills or, or even get your first job, or you're Gen X and you're taking care of your children and your parents, we all want one thing, and that's pretty much a simple life where we can be happy and thrive. One of the challenges I think we always get is demographics are interesting in terms of life events and what is known as life markers. So again, that college experience, that first job versus buying a home and taking care of an elderly parent. But at the core, our lifestyles are driven by those sentiments. You know, do we have the same shared values? Do we have the same priorities in life? But over the next three to four years, we're anticipating and even forecasting that sentiments layer, that EQ coming in incredibly strong as the demographics basically are, are staying somewhat stagnant in terms of those, those life markers, those, those key identifiers that make a demographic element. Okay, so with that as a backdrop and understanding the process a little bit more, let's talk about how anxiety will potentially shape the future um, of these different generations that you've mentioned or even uh, consumer profiles and how individuals can be more prepared. But before we get to that, I'm just going to jump in with some of my recurring questions. So I ask these questions to every guest and I want your immediate answer for all of them. Don't think too hard. Ready? Yes, I'm nervous. <laughs> okay. Number one, why do you work? Because I seek knowledge. And at the core, I'm a knowledge seeker and I love to learn. Do you have a sense of purpose in your work? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. My purpose every day when I get up is how can, this is going to sound incredibly altruistic and millennial, if I'm going to be a demographic, you know, stereotype, how can I make um, the world more equitable for myself, my colleagues and my clients? You did confess during the sound check that you had avocado on toast for breakfast yesterday. So you've already ticked one millennial um, cliche off the, off the list. I know, I know. I, again, just add that to the stereotype over my head. Do you have a sense of purpose in life? Yes, and it's ever-changing, I would say. What is it right now? Right now, it's to... I would say my purpose in life right now is... This, this is a very hard one. My biggest thing that I'm focused on right now is is welfare to work in terms of like volunteer programs. So I'm, I'm volunteering at a prison uh, for women that are incarcerated that don't have access te to technology. So second chance, I think we've all made some mistakes in life and I think it's easy to write people off. So at this very moment, my core purpose is, again, shared knowledge and giving people access to the same technology and, and education that I've had. That is amazing. You always make me feel like a not such good human being, Andrea, through the amazing things you do. Right. Duly noted. I need to up <laughs> my game. Next question. When are you the most creative? Oh, this is interesting. So I, I feel like I'm the most creative really early in the morning. I'm the morning my brain switches on and I do a lot of what I call mind mapping early in the morning. But interestingly enough, I'm probably the most creative when I'm traveling. I think, again, it's having those inputs, those inputs that you 
you have to be aware. You have to be, you know, you're not complacent. You're not in the day to day. So whenever I'm traveling, I always come back and I go, boom, this is an idea. Or why aren't we studying this? Or why aren't we researching that? So daily, the morning, I'm a morning creative person. But in general, I feel like travel gives me the best creative food. Okay. What makes you happy? Oh, my gosh. I feel like this is the Prowse questionnaire. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What makes me happy? At the core thing at the end of the day that I find happiness is very, very probably what everyone is being with my family. When are you offline? This is going to be a bad one, Carla. Probably never. And she will know this because she actually yells at me sometimes if I'm on if I'm on vacation. I'll be like, I'll send her something. She'll say, get offline. I think this is twofold. So I I try to now not have any notifications on past 8 p.m., which I'm really, really working on. My challenge is, this sounds like an excuse. I feel like I'm in like an online addiction class here. Um, (laughs) My challenge is what we do so much is research. And at the core, I love to read and I love to see what people are sharing. So it's not necessarily social media. It's just different forums, different groups. So I, I could be better at this, much better. I raise my hand. And when was the last time you felt you were wasting your time and you only had yourself to blame? When I think of it recently, it was this week. I We got a text with less than 24 hours notice that the power in my neighborhood would be out. Thank you, um, Southern California. And I was trying to do all these things to figure out if I could get a WeWork space. So I ended up spending two hours of valuable time trying to find a solution instead of just sending an email that was like, hey, guys, my internet's electricity is going to be out. Can we move this? So looking back, it was just a complete waste of time. Um, and thank you guys, by the way. But yes, I I don't know why I spent two I was emailing people. I was texting other work associates. Being like, do you have an office I can use? I, I don't know. That, that one, I was just like, why, what, why did I do that? Right. Okay. We're going to get back uh, to your specific thoughts on how we're going to live our lives of tomorrow with anxiety as a focus for our conversation. Why specifically does anxiety and the future of anxiety, something I'm sure we've all probably felt at some point, and it's certainly a topic which has become a lot more spoken about. Why do you, why are you so interested in that? I mean, the the short but somewhat dismal answer is it's affecting everyone. You know, it's it's in a in a era of fragmentation. You know, anxiety in our mental health is the great unifier. Whether you're 14 years old, you know, sitting in South Korea, or you're 82 years old in a retirement home, and it's again, I even hate to say it's a unifier, but it truly is. So we need to figure out how to solve for it, and more importantly. How can we lessen our anxiety and strengthen our mental health that works for everyone at some sort of level? And again, there's there's different levels of cognitive therapy, different levels of how you can ease your anxiety. But I think at the core, every single person wants to know, how can I be mindful? But more importantly, how can I just stop the noise? Do you think that the rates of anxiety and they're widely reported as having increased a lot recently, do you think they genuinely have increased or people are just more open about admitting that they're suffering from this? That's a great question. I think it's twofold, Carla. So we know that we dubbed it Armageddon fatigue. We've dubbed it fear of lo- logging on. There's there's so, you know, no matter what country you sit in, there's so many inputs why anxiety is rising. So truly, it is rising in certain regions and for certain demographics. So we know in, in South Korea, India, and parts of the U.S., anxiety and fear around anxiety is just rapidly increasing. But there is a 
dare I use the term, safe spaces now. And I had a really interesting story where, you know, while the internet creates these negative spaces and creates these dismal data, they offer safe spaces as well for people that, you know, may be coming out, for people that need more support. So it's a weird mix currently of it's increasing just because of the societal changes, the, the social acceleration, the political acceleration. And then, of course, we see it on our phone every day. There was a really fascinating article in The Atlantic, and it said, you know, office culture in the 80s, you wouldn't hear about something instantly. It might take two days to spread through a huge corporation. And now it spreads through, look at the Twitter escape with Elon Musk. Now it's mere seconds, and we feel that. And more importantly, we react to that. So it's definitely twofold. It's increasing, but also we're more aware of our mental health and more willing to share, to seek advice and comfort. It really is. It's like two sides of this coin and there's the positive and the negative with social media. And I've spoken at length in the past in a very positive way about social media. My career has been built in the digital space, but there's the dark side of it as well. And you sort of can't have, you can't just have the good and you don't just get the bad. So it's trying to leverage the good that you can get out of this increasingly connected and fast paced world that we live in. Just coming back to your description of psychographics and the research that you do there versus generational. So I guess here what we, we are talking about attitudes that tie people across multiple different generations. But are you seeing specific manifestations of this within generations and does it differ from generation to generation? Yes, it does. Uh, and again, I think to your point, Carla, it's, you know, I know you've been tracking it and talking about it for a while, too. But we can see how, for instance, anxiety or one of the the outputs of anxiety being burnout has impacted different generations. So we know particularly for Gen Z, they're at a level where they've reached peak anxiety. And what that means is they're, they're seeking so much self-care that essentially they're almost self-care overloaded, right? You know, we I think that the, the latest stat was 6 billion hashtags for self-care on TikTok, where young people actively seeking, how can I improve? How can I be better? And what that's really done is that's kind of driven a nihilism, right? They're, they're pushing back against, you know, the productivity-obsessed culture of other generations. And they're kind of reframing and rewriting what they want from life. And a lot of that's driven by they they really know that we they won't have the same markers of success as previous generations, you know, soaring rents, not being able to get loans, you know, things like that. So they're kind of saying, if if success isn't a house and two and a half kids for me, what is success and how do I achieve that? And then on the flip side, you have Gen X who is dealing with essentially anxiety and burnout by overfunctioning. And over-functioning just essentially in terms of where we're actively studying it right now for our future consumer 2025 sneak peek here team about the outsource economy. So I want to spend time with my family, right? If I'm Gen X, I want to be present with my children. So I'm going to order food. I'm going to make sure that I can get delivery, obviously for a certain level of person. This isn't globally, but for the majority of Gen X, we've become an outsourced society. And how do we, again, everything from picking up clothes, it's driven by the cult of convenience as well. It's driven by on-demand economy. But at the end of the day for Gen X, what's, what they're really struggling with is they've created networks, not communities, whereas Gen Z is really focused on community building right now. I did see, and obviously generational ages and, and years get rewritten all the time by, and by different companies. I was quite happy the other day I saw that actually I was, I was tipping into the millennial category, but technically I think I'm a Gen Xer. And I don't have family that live close by. I mean, they're not 100 miles away, but no, actually, sorry, they are 100 miles away. <laughs> they're a 
couple of <laughs> they're a couple of hours away the nearest ones but you don't have that community that you can rely on around you and I'm juggling a job I'm juggling stepchildren and all the things that come with that and so you do where you can you have to pay for the help and I was with friends recently who are doing a lot of DIY themselves I've never learned to put up shelves I can paint walls I'm good at painting walls but you then have to find <laughs> other people to do that but then it takes time to find the people to do it as well so I'm sounding anxious while I, my my voice is, <laughs> is raising there but this is not the dark side of anxiety do you think do you think being serious for a second that it's going to get worse for future generations? I think for alphas, there's so much happening right now around millennial Gen X parents trying to safeguard that for their children. And I think there's a level of transparency with parenting that was that was different than maybe some of the greatest generation, maybe some of the boomers. So I'm hopeful that for alphas, we see SEL is rising in Western Europe and in the U.S. and that social, social basically learning, social empathy learning for young children. So I think what's happening is for for not I think I should say studies have shown that for Gen X parents and millennial parents, they are instilling the tools of emotional empathy, and basically ways to get through the anxiety. So it's almost like we're all the guinea pigs before us, and we don't want that for younger generations, and we're actively trying to combat that. So my my hope is, as I always say, that, you know, Gen Z and alphas will save us all. But in terms of anxiety rates, unfortunately, we are seeing it trickle in as low as eight years old right now, particularly in the UK. Wow. Just for people who might not be familiar, what is the age range for alphas? So alphas currently starts at 2012. Okay. So it's 2012 to, to present. Yeah. So littlies, but you know, they're, they're at the tween. Some of them are going to be at the tween range of that, aren't they? So going into more senior schools, having to think about exams, and probably lots of them on some social media platforms. I'm just interested in the way that climate change is having an impact on generations anxiety levels and again very very mindful of those the younger ones so the alphas and gen z who have grown up with not just headlines about what might be coming because of climate change but now seeing the impact of it so we've talked about cost of living and rent prices going up and, and that always on generation but what about climate change how does that impact anxiety levels Critically, especially for people that live in an area or for young people that can see it firsthand, eco-anxiety has been rising globally since around 2017, I, I believe is the, the start date when we started really tracking what did eco-anxiety mean for younger generations. I think most of us from a point of privilege, you don't really realize how something is impacting globally until it impacts your neighborhood or your community. And if you look at the past four years, what is just happening globally, whether it's droughts or floods in Western Europe and fires, whether, you know, it's similar in the U.S., you know, look at what happened in Pakistan, you know, obviously APAC. It, it's truly a global account right now. You can see it, you can feel it, and it's impacting you. I think for Gen Z, while the eco-anxiety is rising, what's fascinating is their passion towards making it right. And whether that's positive rage 
and saying we will we will vote against people that don't share the same sustainable values. Um, and that's, a, you know, a, very much a global sentiment. It's not a Western sentiment. And we will make life decisions, purchase decisions, and change our value behaviors to ensure that very small things are happening that will have greater impact for sustainable causes and communities. There were elections recently in the US, there have been elections recently in Brazil and in other countries around the world. And there's been a lot about the the youth vote or youth quake, as it's been coined. It chimes with what you're saying there, which is younger generations taking back control, voting literally with their feet to try and put people into positions of power to do the things that they may not be able to do themselves, but they can certainly make their voices heard doing that. Does that make you feel more positive about the future? Yes, 100 percent. I Watching the elections in real time in the U.S., I'm based in Los Angeles, there was a lot of naysayer before. Same actually with Brazil, too, when we were, we were watching it from globally at WGSN. There was a lot of, um, I would say, stereotypes. The youth aren't going to come out. They're slacktivists. They're only active online. They only want to post something online. They're not going to vote. And it was evidenced in both countries where the largest turnout was the youth population, 18 to 24. And for me, that's truly a a sea change. We will be, and by we, millennials and Gen Z will be the largest voting voting block in the U.S. for the next election, which is massive. And similarly to Brazil, there's there's some tie-ins with kind of mid-level voters there. But I think effectively what's going on is this younger generation is truly voting with their feet and voting with their values, whether that's sustainability, bodily autonomy, workers' rights. Um, They're basically using these these decisions or these they're trying to use their voice in a way that's going beyond just a social media post whether that's fundraising again carly you know we've we've seen it in new york i know you were there in the 2018 elections sorry 16 elections and you could see the protests so there is a definite sea change from just sitting behind a computer and screaming into the void and actively engaging with politics in your local community It's interesting if we go back to what you were saying before about that kind of nihilism with people opting out as a way of coping with anxiety. But this is quite the opposite, isn't it? This is really opting in to try and fix things. And so it's interesting that maybe in the workplace, there's a there's a different way of behaving to the, I guess, the, the, the globe around you or maybe the community around you and how you can change it. And I guess that's that speaks to humans are full of contradictions and they, they adapt and they make their voices heard in, in different ways, depending on what levers they want to pull to drive change. Exactly. It's it's fascinating to see the the nihilism happening and maybe it's maybe it's a shift in, in perfection and maybe it's a shift for new quest career wise versus the active what we say, you know, the positive rage where, where you're truly going out to to make a, a difference. But it is a very dichotomous time right now. You know, you, you've you've got um, anxiety driving positive change and kind of reinventing traditional uh, institutions. And then on the flip side, you have people just saying, I'm so overwhelmed and overburdened. It's easier for me to check out than try to figure out a way to handle all of it at once. What are you personally most anxious about in the future? I would say personally, the state of the U.S. in terms of political kind of perniciousness. We are currently divided. It, it only fragments every year. Again, I'm, I'm really, I, I don't know if it's just positive optimism on my point, but I'm hoping that um, the next two years we can at least reach some point where we can listen to both sides and make positive change because I think effectively we we won't be able to 
to pass any true legislator or bills that will impact. And I, I think, Carla, you know, we're no matter what we think, where where we sit, we're all globally connected. So if, if the U.S. doesn't pass environmental bills, that that doesn't just hurt the U.S. It hurts the globe. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I'm most personally worried about is just the the very um, pernicious behavior in terms of divides politically in the U.S. And on the flip of that, what are you most hopeful about? I'm most hopeful about, I again, I feel, feel like such a cliche saying this, you know, the youth kind of saving us. I think the way they're listening, there is reverse mentoring happening with different generations. I think both sides are really coming together to say, how do we kind of save everything from what we've already done? How do we right it? How do we right the wrongs? And they're actively engaged. I mean, the first Gen Z ever was voted for House of Representatives. So I think new voices, diverse voices, voices from different socioeconomic backgrounds, having this at the table enriches us all, whether that's the boardroom, whether that's, you know, an electoral college. You know, we need diversity and diverse opinions to truly solve all of the challenges we're going through across the globe. If you were speaking to, I guess, someone in a position of power at the moment, whether that was someone running a business, running a particular brand, running a country, what would you be saying to them in terms of how or what they should be doing now to improve people's lives of tomorrow? If I was speaking to a person of government, I would, again, really instate what, what are the diverse voices in the room? I think most most governments are very male-driven. And if they're not very male-dominated, they're very class-dominated. And again, that's not truly solving problems. You know, there's there's a great anecdote of chefs create menus, but, you know, kitchen workers and staff also create the service, which is an ecosystem. So I would truly want to look at global leaders and say, are we being representative to have positive change? And then secondly, I would say we need to focus more on emotional and, and kind of EQ I would say focus on the soft skills because the soft skills are, are what's going to make us listen and be better people as opposed to the hard skills. I think that's really interesting thinking about the soft skills because I think in tough times and lots of countries are going through tough times at the moment, those are things that maybe slip to the bottom of the list when everyone is focused on whether they're delivering great numbers, again, whether that's you're in a business and you're leading that, or if you're in government and trying to put a positive slant on how you mould an economy, um, but some of those softer skills do just get dropped. It's also sadly why topics like sustainability, I certainly worry that those get dropped in times like this. So I think that's great, great advice uh, for anybody who knows that they can have an impact, whether the ecosystem around them is small or large. Everyone has got a part to play in that. I guess that's advice for people who are leading. What about individuals? So we know anxiety rates are increasing. We've talked about why that's happening. What are you telling individuals at the moment that they should be doing in their personal lives to try and combat some of that? So you know, at the core, one of the things is, is truly looking at your time budget. Again, I know this sounds incredibly corporate, and I'm trying not to sound corporate. But if we truly look at our day, what makes up our hours and time, it's it's what, what matters the most to you. So whether, you know, you're going, I'm going to spend nine hours working and only 30 minutes doing something I love. So the first thing I always suggest to people when they say, oh, Andre, I'm feeling overwhelmed or I'm feeling really overburdened or I'm burnt out. Um, and whether that's, you know, people on my team or just friends is I always say, what, what, what are you spending your time on? What is your time budget? 
And it's really fascinating because, you know, we, we can all look at our apps every day and check our bank account. We know what we're spending to a team. But when you ask someone and you challenge them on that, you know, what do you spend time on that makes you happy or that gives you a reset? Most people can't answer. Most people pause deeply and are like, oh, yeah, I, I don't know. So I would say, one, look at your time budget and build in and really prioritize things that bring you joy and things that allow you to disconnect. It's fascinating, again, how much this kind of always on, this cult of convenience that we're used to has impacted the way we use technology for the good and the bad. So if we're not truly putting in time to rest, then we will burn out. You know, burnout is a, a sickness, not a symptom, if, if that makes sense. I was listening to someone speak recently and it was a woman and she said, instead of making to-do lists, we need to start making to-do not lists. And as someone who at the beginning of every weekend, there is a to-do list to get through the week and then beginning of the working week, there'll be a to-do list to do then as well. And I really love that. And actually on the Saturday morning last weekend, my husband got the notepad out and started the to-do list. I was like, I wanted to do not list on this as well. <laughs> um, so I think it's that is good but Carla, advice. I want to stress, it's just what you just said. I think it comes from the top too. I'm, I'm talking purely about organizations now, not in our daily lives, to a certain extent our daily lives, but organizations. I mean, if you if you look at it, we, we reflect or we want to true the best. So one of the things I value in my day-to-day, especially at WGSN, which I know a lot of my teammates value, is we have leaders like that that say, you know, check off. You know, if you if you need a mental health day, take a mental health day. Are you? Why are you emailing me on a weekend? So I think the shift truly comes to from executive leadership. I mean, look, again, I dare, I dare we talk about Elon Musk in this sentence, but when you look at the ultimatum that Elon Musk gave all of his employees, all 5,000, um, there was two kind of really defining moments. One, it said, you must be prepared for a manic workload. And two, you must be prepared to kind of come into the office. Now, I think what was fascinating about, you know, the salutes online and everything that we were tracking in real time is a lot of the executive team left as well. And it wasn't because you know, they couldn't, quote, handle it. It was because they said, I'm not going to do this to my team. And I think what happens in times of recession, times of economic downturns, companies that actually succeed and retain employees are the ones that recognize, again, when we talk about, Carla, those soft skills, but also say, I'm going to lead by example because it absolutely does my business no good if every employee is burning out and and not there, you know, creatively and mentally. So not to discuss the the, the great musk in the corner, as we keep saying, but it, it is a fascinating real-time case study and how overworking your employees or, or, or setting expectations that aren't realistic are impacting global companies. Right. I'm not going to let you go uh, until you've answered uh, the question I posed to you right at the beginning, which is, when did you last learn something new that had an impact on the way you live your life? I would say that the last really, really big thing I learned new, not just like a, a fun fact or a stat, is this is going to sound so strange. Let me have a think on this one, but because I have a few like, Carl, I have some that are like just very basic. Like I literally learned how to use an air fryer, guys. Is this groundbreaking? No, but if I'm in a hurry in the morning, it really helps me make toast in a minute. <laughs> Don't get me on air fryers. We could do another half an hour episode on air fryers. I am obsessed. <laughs> That's the first thing that came to find. I was like, my air fryer like love affair that I'm having right now. And I'm like, is this too cheesy? But I, I'm obsessed with it. It makes things so much easier. It's quicker. Again, I don't I don't know. I still love to cook. I cook constantly. I love the old fashioned, you know, stuff. But man, air fryers, genius. <laughs> now, that might not be in your serious answer to that question, <laughs> no. but I did love it. Is there anything else that you've learned recently that's had an impact on how you live your life? 
This one is a really tough one, guys, and I'm not just passing this one. When I think of like groundbreaking things I've learned that's impacted my life, it's small, like incremental things. Like it's simple things like finding a new hack in Excel, genuinely, or figuring out how to work this microphone in my computer with the new software. Like, <laughs> I, I, I honestly feel like this is like, I'm sure everyone else has had these beautiful, captivating answers. Mine are just like small and boring. No, they're not small and boring. I mean, if anyone <laughs> if anyone could teach me how to do anything in Excel, I'd be, well, actually, I wouldn't be delighted. I just, I just hate Excel. No one's ever going to make fall in love with Excel. I have an affair, an ongoing affair with air fryers, but definitely not Excel. Well, I want to say a huge thank you for talking to me today. As always, it's been fascinating. It's made me think differently and I'm sure it's going to do the same for many other people. Thanks, Carla. And that's it for now. Today's episode featured Andrea Bell, our VP of Consumer Insight, Forecast and Strategy here at WGSN. Do let me know what you think about this podcast and the direction that you want it to go in the future. You can write to me anytime at lives at WGSN.com. And please come back for more. A new episode will be out shortly about how we all live our lives of tomorrow. I'm Carla Bazashi, CEO of WGSN, and I'll see you next time.